Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion featuring a variety of automotive subjects, interviews, special guests, and stories, hosted by the Round 6 Gearheads, Brian Stupski, Brad King, Alex Welsh, and Eric Hibbs. On episode 15, the gearheads explore the science of fasteners and talk hot rods with the executive vice president of ARP, Bob Florine. Hey, welcome to the Round 6 podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Brad. I'm Alex. And where a lesser man, or shall we say just a less mature me from, say, two or three episodes ago, may have gone the easy route with a bunch of hardware puns, I'll instead just welcome you to a uh, an hour in the fastener lane with our guest tonight, Mr. Bob Flooring, who is one of the owners and the head of Automotive Racing Products, a company you may know as being one of the major suppliers of fasteners and hardware for everything from Formula One to Riddler Award winners and everything in between. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule, and welcome to the show. How are you hey, tonight, everyone. sir? Hey, Bob. Hey, everyone. Bob. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate it. Glad to be on the show. Thanks. We are glad to have you, sir. As to your comment about me being the head of the company, I am one of the owners, but not the head by any means. Um, we're a big company. We have 300 employees and... Uh, it really, I mean, you hear this all the time, it takes a team, but it really does take a team to make our company work. So I just wanted to say that. That's an outstanding thing to say. And thank you so much for clarifying that. How are you doing tonight, sir? Oh, oh wonderful. Yeah. Um, uh, I uh, was out today in San Bernardino at Gabe's Upholstery, and we were um, working on a new project with a good friend of mine, Steve Steve Strope from Pure Vision, and uh, and talking about a, a coming project that I'm going to be working on. I just finished one. Well, it isn't even finished yet, and I'm already starting on a new one. So um, <laughs> it shows you how sick I am. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, everything went well, and uh, glad to be with you guys. I truly am. Oh, thank you. Likewise, we've been looking forward to this. I suppose the logical place to start is uh, how did your career with ARP begin? Well, <laughs> it was a long time ago. It was actually 42 years ago this last May. Wow. And, uh, I worked in the sales industry at the time, and my roommate was working for ARP. Um, and we were young, and he was still in his party mode. I had uh, pretty much worked my way mostly out of it. Um, and the founder of the company was coming by and looking for him on a regular basis, wondering where he was, why he wasn't at work. So uh, we, we built a rapport, and uh, I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to be involved in the racing industry. Uh, why don't you give me a shot? And so I went to work for him, and I started out sweeping floors and driving a delivery truck and a machinist trainee, even though the intent both with him and myself was to work into a sales position within the company. He wanted to make sure I learned the business from the ground up. And, uh, 
So I spent the next six years learning the business from the ground up before I ever made a sales call, believe it or not. And well, it was the best kind of decision. The way to do it. It, it really was the best decision, bar none. Agreed with it wholeheartedly. And, you know, I can still to this day go out and set up and run equipment, any of the equipment in the business. And uh, so there's nothing like knowing your product inside and out if you're going to sell it. So that's been my primary responsibility is the sales and marketing end of the company. And eventually it got to a point where I became an owner. So, you know, for all you youngsters out there, because I know you're just loaded with youngsters in your audience. Um, <laughs> well, well uh, ho hopefully young and driven people. That'd be good, you know. And nose to the grindstone. Yes. Starting at the bottom isn't a bad thing. Coming in and demanding that you be hired into a position of management or leadership right off of the bat. Um, is no good for you or the company. So that awesome. would be my moral for the day, gentlemen. <laughs> so after 42 years of being with the company, what has it been like to see the growth uh, that ARP has had? And I think I researched it. I think in 68, Gary started the company. Is that is that, that true? That, yeah, that's correct. He started that in the, in the garage as a, a nighttime uh, venture, uh, a means of, of uh, supplementing his income. He was the foreman of an aerospace company during the day, and then he'd come home and work until he couldn't stand up anymore at night, um, you know, just to make a supplemental income because he had a young uh, family to support. And, uh, you know, that's just the way people did things back in that generation. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, I, I can't imagine the growth that you have seen uh, from starting out in something that small and, and well, limited employees to where you're, they said three, over 300 employees now. And, over 300, yeah. Wow. To give you an idea of the growth, when I started there, the first year that I worked there, our gross sales for the entire year was $110,000. Wow. And wow. that was the best that it had ever done. So there was a big party, you know, the end of the, of the year, uh, to celebrate that fact. I can tell you that, uh, last year, um, we did well in excess of 50 million. Nice. Um, well, that's a, that's a nice jump. Yeah. <laughs> well, it wasn't wow. wasn't exactly overnight. That would be awesome. I mean, that, <laughs> no, but that'd be the greatest yeah, Christmas party a, ever. A steady growth curve um, every year since I've been there. We've never had less than seven percent growth a year. Wow, that gets a lot harder. I guarantee you. Hey, Bob, do you guys do you guys have a lot of competition, um, or are you guys kind of a one? one yes, of yes, one? we have lots of competition. Don't get in the business, please. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. Honestly, we, we really found a niche here, and uh, uh, no, we don't really have a qualified competitor. Um, we have in the past uh, had uh, some competitors, but they've all gone by the wayside. Sorry, sorry, folks out there for my dog. I'm sorry. Um, we have in the past had some competitors. The last um, qualified competitor we had was a company called A1, and they were owned by a, a multinational conglomerate. Um, and 
there was a lot of money behind the company. They just never could make it stick, though. They just they never could really make any headway against us. And the in the corporate company just finally said, you know, fold it up. We're tired of you know spending the money we're spending here trying to to get market share and getting nowhere. So they just folded it up. Do you think they just couldn't match your quality, or they just didn't uh, match the diversity of product that you guys had? Uh, it was some of both. Um, they did have a, a very good quality compared to most of the competitors we've had in the past. Um, but still, uh, I mean, when when you look at companies like SPS Industries, that was a big name when we started really going after the automotive aftermarket. The uh, When we started going after that uh, automotive aftermarket, S- Standard Press Steel, SPS Industries, was the big player there. And... Uh, and we continually were able to outperform them and outprice them uh, at every turn. And uh, and that still holds true to this day. We've become better and better at manufacturing product, not only making it a better product, but also doing it more cost effectively. Going over, you know, Alex, Alex is our, our research king here. <laughs> he provided us... That you know, as far as like the quality of your product goes, which obviously speaks for itself. I mean, you guys are used in everything from OEM to, I mean, NHRA, uh, IndyCar, NASCAR, aerospace. Well, for crying out loud, I don't think there's anything you guys don't touch. Formula One. Yeah, there really isn't. I say from go karts to Formula One, offshore racing boats to pylon racing planes, and up in space. I mean, we do work. Um, for a couple of private companies, we shall say, because I'm bound by non-disclosure agreements. Um, so our stuff is actually even to this day going up into space. And uh, and we still do aerospace work as far as uh, uh, defense work and that type of thing as well. And we do a lot of uh, various military work as, aside from, uh, you know, flying uh, there's on the ground stuff that we do as well. So very diversified. We also, uh, Budweiser, um, they were having a problem with, uh, breaking their, the bolts that hold their, uh, stamping dies on that they stamp the lids of their, uh, of their cans with. So we d- developed a product for them and they haven't had any breakage since Hormel foods, stainless steel product for their, for their, uh, for their food line. Um, uh, oil industry uh, bolts that hold the, the drilling heads on because that goes into some really foul um, uh, corrosive uh, stuff when they're drilling not to mention uh, very large uh, 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 loads on, on, the, on the bolts as well and we've uh, been able to build them product that doesn't fail uh, fire departments, local transportation departments um, you name it. You know what? And most of that work has come from guys, racers, that have day jobs <laughs> because they have to support their, their habit. And and uh, they, they see a bolt problem at work and they go, hey, I know a company that can fix that. And that's how most of that has come to us. Believe that's it or not. Awesome. I mean, it, it's really, it's amazing. 
if somebody comes to you with a problem and says, hey, Bob, we got this, say, our, our lid machine, we're trying to stamp these camps out, it keeps breaking the bolts, do they pretty much turn you guys loose on it and allow you guys to fix it? Or do they go, we think this, here's an engineering drawing, can you make this bolt? Or do they give you uh, guys some, the ability to go in there and, and, and kind of design and work it? Yeah, it, it's some of both. Um, a lot of it is convincing their engineering staff to just trust us, let us do an analysis yeah. of the situation and design a product for the application, tell you the truth. Yeah. And, and once we convince our engineering staff to turn us loose and let us do our thing, we fix their problem. If the engineering staff gets too involved in the project, it, it tends to draw it out further. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's more of a trial and error thing than if you know what I mean. Yeah, I always kind of wondered in a, in a case like where you guys say a Formula One team comes over and they've got an issue that, they, that they're working through that's unique and proprietary to their own team. Well, and, Formula uh, One's a whole different thing. Yeah, I was going to say, the truth, how do they do uh, it? You know? Yeah, we, we've tried to tell them, you know, look, we can, we can save you guys a lot of money if you just do this. No. <laughs> just build it to the engineering drawing we supplied you. We don't care how much it costs. Just do that. Uh, you know, they're more concerned with delivery times than they are with the, with cost. Um, I guess they just have too much money. Yeah. I got to think with those guys, you know, they, you know you've know, you got a Formula One engine that turns 18,000 RPMs. I mean, how many life cycles are you putting on that bolt during a race? Yeah. Well, they used to be turning 18 to 20,000 RPM, even up to 22. But these days, they've really limited the RPM on these things. You know, they're, they've got 21 races a year, and they've only got three engines to do it on. So, uh, wow. They the RPMs way down on those things. It's around 15,000 RPM now, which That's is it? no slouch. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it makes a big difference in the life of the engine, uh, uh, believe it or not. It truly does. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, it's amazing. Um, uh, it's truly amazing the things that we do for them. And unfortunately, again, because of non-disclosure agreements, I can't disclose any of that to you. But it is truly amazing some of the things that they're doing as far as development and, and design work. It's, uh, it's truly amazing. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, a lot of the times, I'm a Formula 1 fan, so you watch the races and you hear about some of the new things that they're doing. And if when a fan finally hears about it, it's probably about five years old. They've probably oh, been developing it forever. Oh, yeah. It, yeah, yeah you're the last five. to know. Yeah. <laughs> it's something they'll never use again if they're telling you what it is. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, Ferrari's extra parts room, what that thing would be like? It would just got to be amazing. I mean, some of the things that they tried that didn't work or didn't work to their ex expectations. Truly. There's there's a guy um, uh, somewhere on the Internet that, uh, that makes um, uh, speaker systems. Um, that incorporate Ferrari exhaust, Ferrari Formula One exhaust. And I, I, I don't know if it's uh, designs that didn't work or designs that have been retired, but they mm -hmm. truly are beautiful works of art. Now, of course, they're, uh, they're, not, uh, they're not exactly in the average guy's uh, budget, but, yeah. I, and I have no idea how they sound, but they, sh they look gorgeous. I just wonder if there's a Chinese knockoff of those out there who can buy that. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> although thinking about that now, an interesting question for you. I know it's it's relatively prevalent in all the aftermarket uh, 
anything aftermarket usually how even the oems deal with it do you guys have to deal at all with counterfeit parts or forgeries hitting the market yes we do we have to go after it aggressively all the time um uh, our our lawyers fees and legal fees i, I assure you are, are not a small thing uh, and if you don't aggressively pursue it there's a thing called sleeping on your rights so you can lose your rights if you don't pursue it. So it's it's wow. necessary to to get on top of and, and pursue this stuff aggressively all the time. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to take one of those counterfeits that you know they say is your part, but it's not, and run it through your uh, durability and all the other tests that you guys put your product through to see how uh, it yeah, stacks it, up. It's, it's got to be even, junk. It's not even close. It's. <laughs> A lot of this stuff you can look at and you go, oh, my God. You can visually see the problems. Huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What if, what, if, what if we start our own F1 team, okay, and we build it strictly using counterfeit parts? We call it Team Push Broom. <laughs> Straight five bolts all over it. Team Push Broom sounds like a great. Grade five bolts. Grade five. We're going to go through. bolts to stretch. That's, part of, that's how our chassis works. It has to stretch. <laughs> yeah, we have to push it everywhere we go. <laughs> we'll use all three of our first, all three of our season engines in the first like four laps. It's going to be the greatest <laughs> thing I've ever run. Uh, well, I, I guess there's starting money. If you could actually get the thing to start the race, you know, you probably get something for that. So there's that. Ah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, typically NASCAR, you, you, uh, like Daytona 500, if you start the race, you're guaranteed at least 250000 So it's probably not a bad, bad idea for a venture. I mean, years to, ago, they used to have that term start and park, and you don't see as much of that anymore. The guys that are actually getting out there and, you know, qualifying 43rd, they'll get out there and try. They, you yeah. know, they may not go very far, but they'll at least get out there and try. Before, they would blatantly go out there, start the race, do a couple laps, park the car. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. you don't see that anymore. I kind of wonder. No, if they no, you really don't, because one, the, there's just too many drivers trying to break into that market. Yeah. So they always want to make their impact as much as they can, but also start, sponsors are a lot more demanding now than they used to be. Yeah. They they want performance for their product, so yeah, they, they want to see that logo go around the track a lot. <laughs> are, are are not backwards. They're not these backwards Southern boys. They've brought a lot of Formula One uh, people and engineers into their teams, and they've really made huge strides. Well, you think about a normally aspirated 5.8 liter motor making over 800 horsepower. I, that was the, the last I heard was over 800. It might be more than that now. And it's not mm. even a roller cam. It's a it, solid. <laughs> and so, and what's even more impressive. That, that, that they, alone right there is impressive. They had individual timing in each cylinder due to their cam profiles and so forth. I, I was fortunate enough to spend, Oh, I don't know, somewhere in the eight to 10 years, uh, of the last years of Smokey's life, um, traveling around and doing shows and in going to NASCAR races and so forth. And, and spending some time with him and listening to him and some of the NASCAR engine builders talk, I, I was just floored at the technology that they were getting out of a simple pushrod engine 
uh, running at the RPMs they were. And, and, and the whole individual timing thing uh, through CAM profiles and so forth was just mind-blowing, mind-blowing. And, and they could even tune that to RPMs to some degree. And I don't know all of the mechanics of it. Um, I certainly don't have a photographic memory. Um, but listening to T Smokey and some of these engine millers talk about what they were doing in there was, was just beyond my comprehension at the time. He had some of the greatest stories, too. Um, I can't imagine. That guy had a full life, I guarantee you. That guy, yeah. I, I, my, one of the most memorable things I've ever done, I actually, we got to meet Smokey at, at uh, SEMA, and it was a couple years before he passed away, and he was doing some work with Prolong. So he was in the uh, Prolong yeah. booth. Yeah. And we always laughed about it because Linda Vaughn was also doing promotional work, too. And Linda's great. She's phenomenal. Yeah. Well, well Linda's great, line yeah. was way long, and there was hardly anybody in Smokey's line. So we got a chance to sit and talk with Smokey for a while. And mm -hmm. uh, what a cool guy. We, oh, we had yeah. to ask him about the Chevelle, you know, the 7 8 Chevelle. And he told us a bunch of stories about, or a couple things about it that – I'd never read anywhere else in any of the articles. So uh, I would sure have loved to just spent hours and hours just talking to that guy. I'm sure he told you it wasn't actually seven eights either. Right. Yeah. 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 He just, uh, it I was mean, just a Chevelle with a shave and a haircut everywhere pretty much. Well, yeah, there were, you know, little things that, that made a huge difference. He tell you about the, uh, the little arrow treatment he did to the roof back by the rear window. It kind of like its own little mini spoiler back in the back, yeah, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, there that that car was uh, absolutely loaded with stuff, and it was. Incredible. Oh yeah, it was. But he was a character, man. What a what a neat guy. And I've read his book a couple of times, and uh, yeah, it's a good read. It's it, it it travels all over the place, and it's a little disjointed at times, but it's worth it. It's worth reading. And he introduced me to some of the most interesting people I've ever met as well. You know, he introduced me to Colonel Bill Strop, uh, all the guy, the guy that rode all the rocket sleds. All right. Okay. Back in the development yeah. days of NASA. Yeah. That jumped out of the uh, weather balloon. At I did some research on that guy. That guy was a badass. Oh yeah, you. He bet. was a doctor also. Yes. Yeah, yeah, he had a PhD, a sharp yeah. guy. You know, I work at Edwards Air Force Base, and on the way out of the South Gate. You could still see remnants of the concrete ties that were part of that rocket sled track. Mm -hmm. And you and you you pass right over. Every day when I go to work, I pass over those things. And I always think about that, that guy, you know, rocket sled. You know, not only the acceleration checks that he did, it was also the deceleration checks. I think they were probably more brutal than the acceleration checks. Uh, absolutely. Do you know that he spent one month before he rode that sled the first time? going home to his domicile on base and blindfolding himself for one month before he rode that because he was sure he was going to be blind after he rode it. And he rode it anyway. I think on one of the deceleration checks, he was blind for a period of time. It wasn't, you know, like 30. He was blind for a what? It wasn't like weeks and months, but he was blind for a period of time. Yeah, you know, not knowing if your vision is yeah, going to come back. Temporary blindness. Yeah. yeah, but he he was sure he was going to be blind. That's why he spent a month learning his way around his his living quarters, wow. blindfolded. Wow, that takes that takes <laughs> huge courage. Yeah, you know, there's 
There was, was a lot of Mavericks in the business back then that uh, oh, you know, yeah. people don't really think much about now, but th- they are the guys that paved the way for the entire industry. Absolutely. Yeah. They just don't build a lot of guys like that anymore, do they? <laughs> no. Well, nowadays in the business, you can simulate a lot of things using a lot of computer modeling. And so there isn't as True, much You don't danger. have to brutalize yourself yeah, like right. you did back in those days. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, before we started uh, talking, I went and grabbed my ARP catalog. And I got to say, whoever put this catalog together, I have to uh, give them huge kudos. The first 30 pages of this catalog are probably the best reading in any catalog you will ever, ever buy. It's basically almost a college textbook in what you will learn. There is, uh, yes, a wealth of technological. I love it. I'm sitting there flipping through it right now. I'm just blown away at it. It's, It's phenomenal. Yeah, well, we had Dr. Ken Foster, uh, Dr. Russell Sherman, um, and uh, uh, Carol Smith, who you guys will probably be familiar with. Uh, uh, Rest in peace, Carol. Miss you. Um, And Smokey um, were all involved in in a lot of that um, information, as well as us internally. But... um, yeah, that's, that's stuff that we've put together over the years and is a wealth of information to, to a guy um, considering the proper installation and use of fasteners just in general. Yeah. And yeah. I'm sorry about the birds in the background. I covered them up. That should have shut them up. But <laughs> we, we have that effect on... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> you should, you should hear what happens with flightless waterfowl. It's pretty crazy. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's just a wealth of information in this first 30 pages. It, yeah. it truly is. And and not only there, on our websites, we even have a lot more. Uh, uh, we have a website just for instructions for all of our product. And we update that on a regular basis. So it's a good idea that uh, you refer to that just to make sure that you've got the latest updated information. But how many times have we sent something off to an engine builder and he goes through it and he gets it ready, but he doesn't return the, uh, the paperwork or information with you yeah. uh, to, to you with the uh, product. So it's always good to go back and, and refer to that for torquing uh, procedures and levels and, mm-hmm. and lubricants and everything else. So. I remember the first ARP product I ever bought, I bought a set of uh, main studs for a small block I was putting together. And I remember reading the instructions, you know, oil the threads, put them in hand tight. I'm like, what? There's no way. You know, I couldn't believe it, you know, but that's that's the way they are. I mean, it's the yeah, way Yeah, but is. a stud, you're just pulling it from both ends. It, mm-hmm. it, if, you, mm-hmm. if you tried to tighten it into the block, and if you didn't have a bottoming feature on the stud where it actually bottomed on the bottom of the stud into uh, the material of the block in a, into a blind hole. If you didn't have that and you tightened the stud into the uh, block, so you're tightening it against the runout thread of the stud and you're tightening it against the runout thread at the top of the thread in the block, you're actually um, uh, tipping that stud over to one side because those are imperfect threads. So it just tips everything over to one side. Then you have 17 of those in a small block, um, and they're all tipped over to one side or another, trying to put your cylinder head on. Um, 
it would not be an easy thing for one. (laughs) But even more important, though, is that you're putting a high stress on the last thread. And threads are the weakest link of a fastener. So you're putting a high stress on that last thread as well. But when you just install them in hand tight, and I, we actually recommend that you back it off like an eighth to a quarter of a turn uh, once it stops threading in by hand. Um, then you're pulling on that thread evenly, and, and it pulls on the stud from both ends, which is how a stud is supposed to work. So, and it also preserves the threads in your block. A lot of advantages to running a stud, but it is important yeah. to install them properly. I got a question as far as the torquing things. What what caused the change from, uh, you know, let's say torque and a set of rod bolts. You know, you go, okay, I'm going to do them 40, you know, 55, 60, whatever. And it went from it went from a torque wrench deal to a stretch gauge. When What what caused that to change? Well, I mean, we've was... always recommended a stretch gauge, and I'll tell you why, especially on connecting rod bolts. One, it's arguably the most critical joint in in an automotive engine two you can get to both ends of the bolt generally some aftermarket aluminum rods and and race rods and whatever you can't necessarily get to both ends of the bolt but generally you can get to both ends of the bolt so measuring the elongation or stretch in a bolt is empirical it is a mathematical problem and will repeat every time. If you install a bolt by stretch to a given number, it will have a given clamping force every time, 100% of the time. Torque is a variable. It's based on how much friction there is. And not only that, how accurate your torque wrench is. So torque is a variable, stretch is empirical, and that's the reason why we always recommend stretch. Okay. So so how did you guys, I, can, I mean, there's one of those that's a little more scientific than just guessing. I mean, where do you, you know, is there is there a certain amount per inch or inch and a half or two inches or how, I mean, well, I, this is kind of a weird a, deal. A, it's based on a bolt's length diameter, tensile strength, and uh, and when I say diameter, you can have multiple diameters in a bolt. So it's it's something that's designed around each bolt. But, you know, basically it's it's mean diameter and it's length and and, uh, and tensile strength are the main factors there. And then we're looking for a figure of 75% of yield. If you want to know what yield is, yield is a point where a fastener or bolt is in an elastic range until it is yielded. Once it's yielded, it's because it's it becomes what's called plastic. As long as it's in an elastic range of the material, you can release your torque and the bolt will return to its original freestanding length. And, and it's like nothing had ever happened to it. If you reach or surpass yield, then the bolt is into a plastic range and will never be the same. Again, it's like stretching a spring out 
say, a throttle spring. You pull on the throttle spring under the yield point, and it, it just returns back every time to where it was. But if you actually stretch that past yield, then it, it does not return to its original shape. You know, some of those coils are separated and, and won't go back to being not separated anymore. That's because you've gone beyond the yield of that spring. And fasteners are springs, basically. They're very strong springs. So uh, if, if you have a load uh, trying to separate your cylinder head from your block, say, of 10,000 pounds, and you put a fastener in and load it up to 10,001 pounds, and during, and let's just say there's no thermal properties involved, but it's just load, um, that fastener will never feel any load at all until it surpasses 10,001 pounds. And then it'll only feel, say it goes to 10,002 pounds, it'll only feel that one pound load. Does that make any sense to you? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So ideally, you, you want a, a installed preload that is higher than the load that'll ever be used uh, to try and separate that joint. So I... When we design a fastener for an application, our, our, our rule of thumb is we like to see a two-to-one if we can get there. Now, you can't always get there because you have constraints uh, such as material strength in the um, co- components you're trying to fasten, um, uh, the say, in an aluminum head-type situation. You can't generally go two to one in in many cases because the aluminum either uh, um, not of quality enough or there's not enough material thickness so to speak to prevent it from distorting um, if you were to go to a two to one type situation so you have to back that down some but you always want to make sure you're going to exceed whatever the maximum projected load is and then also with aluminum, you also have to factor in the, the thermal properties, which I brought up a little earlier. So uh, your typical aluminum cylinder head stretches between 15 and 20 thousandths, the fastener between 15 and 20 thousandths during use. Um, it moves a lot when you heat it up. So... so- this this might be kind of a dopey question, but I figure this might be fun for our listeners too. So in a case of having to design a, a custom fastener for whatever application, you, you've got to engineer this fastener to handle the load um, and, and perform its its duty that you know, you're obviously trying to design it for. My question is, do you run into situations where you, you have to almost develop an entirely new metallurgy for an application, or do you kind of have a go-to you know, like a go-to pile of things where you say, oh, we're going to use this particular material. Do you ever find yourself having to say we need to come up with something entirely new for this? Uh, there may come a day when we do, but no, not currently. Okay. Um, we, we have a go-to group of materials that we use for particular uh, situations. Um, it, it's generally a matter of getting enough strength Um and I, as I said, you know, with aluminum being so prominent in the, in the racing industry, uh, getting enough strength and, and having enough flex 
in the fastener or spring-like action in the fastener to make it work without damaging the uh, the components you're bolting together or clamping together. So uh, we have to, as we, as we go up in strength, we have to also keep in mind we need to make those fasteners more flexible, uh, more able to act like a spring because as you're strengthening them, materials that you're strengthening tend to get stiffer. So you, you need to figure out a way to make it more flexible so that it doesn't damage the uh, components you're bolting together, yet carry the clamping loads uh, to prevent it from separating uh, during use. I, I know that is a little hard to grasp, but <laughs> that's the reality of it. Right. <laughs> So, it, you know, sometimes you really have to ro walk a tightrope there because you, you're trying to get more strength for the application. And a lot of these, you know, supercharged, turbocharged, especially turbocharged, because you also not only have a, a high strength and a, a, an issue with uh, uh, the uh, material you're trying to clamp together, you don't want it collapsing and distorting to the point where it ruins the uh, the uh, cylinder head, so to speak. Um, but you also have high thermal properties as well. So um, all those things have to be factored in. And it, it's amazing. You look at, uh, just say NASCAR, for instance. Uh, a lot of the cylinder heads that they're using there, uh, uh, cylinder head fasteners that they're using there now, are typically three-eighths, some as, as small as five-sixteenths in diameter for the cylinder head studs. Because there's more of them, or why are they Well, the, there, is, there is more of them, but they're higher-strength materials. And not necessarily the threads being that smaller diameter, but the area between the threads being that smaller diameter. In some cases, the threads are smaller diameter as well. But I never would have thought that. Yeah, I mean, can, think about how cool that is, though, because you're you're saving a ton of weight by using a smaller fastener. That's oh my god, that's not. Well, you're you're also um, giving way to a lot of possibilities of moving things around in the cylinder. Yep. If you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, plus it's close yeah. to stuff. You get stuff close to valve springs or whatever, where all of a sudden you get to have a little tiny head on the thing because you can't get anything in there to because something's in the way of it. Well, and, you know, and, it's, and yeah, port, it's, port positions and things yep. of that nature yeah. too. So, wow. yeah, some some heads you can only port a particular amount because you're right into one of the uh, stud bosses. Exactly. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Make make the thing a little bit smaller diameter gives you a little bit more space to move that port over. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I never would have thought that, but that's that's clever. Hey, I always noticed in the last couple of decades, especially specifically with GM and the LS motors, we started hearing a term called torque to yield, one-time use bolts. Now, is that because GM started figuring out the stretch as well, or did they go to a different material to where they got the strength that they needed, they got the lightweight that they needed, knowing that when the engineer got rebuilt, well, these fasteners are all disposable fasteners. What would what what why did they go to that direction? Yeah, what brought them to that decision um, typically is uh, a couple of things. Uh, one being cost. So if they could design a fastener where you could use all of the strength of it um, 
to get the job done um, instead of a, a, a part that needed to be um, stronger and therefore more expensive uh, that you were only taking the 70, 75% of yield. Um, there's that aspect of it. But more importantly is when they went to the, uh, the multi-torque um, fixtures where they, where they started torquing all the bolts at once, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, they have these big fixtures that come down and torque all of the cylinder head bolts at once. So it, it's mainly a function of that. It's a, uh, it's a torque angle of deflection process with those big torquing heads. Um, so it applies a initial torque, and then it, it, it measures an angle of, of turn, and they know that every fastener then is installed at or above yield. It's generally uh, considered uh, 90 to 120 percent of yield is, is where their installed uh, 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 tensils are at. I always wonder, say somebody is in a rush, puts something back together, uses a, a torque to yield fastener a second time, say a, a head bolt or a head stud, what's going to happen to that stud? If it, if it does fail, what's what part of that stud is going to fail? Is it going to just well, it depends on tensile strength. It'll break stuff. itself or shear it, itself. It, it will. I mean, again, to go back to my throttle spring analogy, think if you used a throttle spring that had been yielded. What happens there? Yeah. It, it doesn't yeah. necessarily. It doesn't come break back to the fail, same number. Yeah. But it doesn't work properly. Mm -hmm. um, you're not going to get full throttle out of that carburetor anymore. Because the spring isn't working properly. Well, it's you know similar type situation. I mean, it just isn't gonna, it isn't gonna work the way it was designed to work. Um, yeah, in a lot of cases they're they're gonna break it. I mean, um, when you yield something, that's not the breaking point. When when you look at a, a fastener being loaded up to the point of yield, it's going up the chart on about a forty five degree angle. When you actually reach yield. It, uh, it, it noses over and starts rounding mm -hmm. off, and, and it doesn't break there. It'll actually start down on that curve before it actually gets to the point where it breaks. Wow. But it'll be considerably longer than it was before you started applying the load. Mm -hmm. Say, you know, something on the order of about four and a half inches, typical small block Chevy head bolt. Um, if you went into yield on that on that head bolt, didn't break it, just took it into yield, you're probably talking somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 50 thousandths in that range elongation or, or, or how much the, it grows in length compared to what it really was before you started applying that load. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> look at it this way. I did the, we started undercutting our our head our head stud kits for the small block Chevy way back in the mid 70s because Jim Hall came to us and said, "Look, Ed, Jim Hall of of Chaparral Cars came to us and said, look, um, these small short side exhaust studs are only two and a half inches long and they are too stiff.'" And 
when you apply the correct amount of torque to them, they're only stretching about two to two and a half thousandths. So if your gasket takes a set at all, and generally, you know, anything except a solid steel gasket is going to take a set, then, then you've lost all the load off of your short side studs in these small block Chevys. So he explained it to us and showed us how it was happening. So he said, you got to undercut these studs in order to make them more flexible. The, the point I'm, I'm trying to make here, though, is that the gasket takes a set, whatever. Um, and, and if you can imagine 2000s being the cause, as Jim Hall was telling us, of a head gasket failure, imagine what 20 to 50. 25 to 50,000. I mean, you really lifting that head on that thing. So that's why some, that's why some bolts then have got, have got the machine that tapers down where it could be at, you know, half inch at the biggest spot and narrowed down to say three eighths of it, you know, in the, in the smaller spot. Is that why it's like that? Yeah, pretty much in general. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of it. Some of it is that, um, on say factory style head bolts and, and a lot of that type of thing. Um, a lot of aftermarket general bolts in, in general, um, they will, instead of being seven sixteenths all the way down to where the thread starts, there'll be seven sixteenths for a small portion of it. And then it goes down to what would be, uh, uh, terminology we call it a TD diameter or a thread diameter TD thread diameter it would be re- roughly the pitch diameter or about the medium level uh, of uh, as you go uh, uh, follow a thread flank it would be about the medium level between the top and bottom of the thread that's an area what is typically referred to as the pitch and uh, that is an approximate level uh, of diameter that you need before rolling or extruding a thread onto the bolt. So a lot of companies will run, especially commercial companies, but even competitors for us in the automotive industry will run them to, and we have some product that way too, will run them to the TD diameter in order to uh, save a process, save a, a grinding uh, process. So they forge that right into the bolt, and then all they have to do is run it through the bolt threader, and, and uh, they've, saved a, uh, they've saved one weight, they've saved uh, 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 another process, and, uh, and they generally do that. Our competitors and commercial bolts are all done prior to heat treating the part. So. They just come off of the bolt maker and into a thread rolling attachment and, and then they're heat treated afterwards. Now we we do do our head bolts to where they have a big uh, thread diameter length on them, but we're doing it for flexibility, but we're grinding that in after the heat treatment and before the thread rolling process. So. So there was, a, there, was a, there was a reason you got a game plan here. It wasn't just yeah, it did this. No, it was a, yeah. it was a it plan was for it. Done willy nilly. Correct. <laughs> I always wondered during the manufacturing of a bolt, whether it's made from a, a blank of rod or wire, whatever it's made out of, 
say you're running something that's super, super strong, say like uh, like AirMet or something that's really, really strong. When the heading process happens, how do you do that? If you've got a bolt that's made out of a material that's got such a high tensile strength and you're about ready to hammer this thing and put a head on the end of it, how do you do it with a well, bolt that's got that kind of strength to it? Yeah, we do it one of two ways. And, and we have a lot of cold heading equipment in our plant. And they are what you call progressive headers. They are called progressive because you progressively form the part by smacking it more than one time. In our case, uh, it's five stations and four dies, four hammers. So it's hitting it four times um, to form it into its shape. Um, so we do some of those materials, and, and it's called cold heading because you're not heating the material up before you put it in the machine to head it. Um, so we do some of those parts cold heading on these progressive headers. The majority of our product is actually done this way. It's very cost effective. We can cold head parts at a rate of 35 to 40 forgings uh, per minute. The other way of doing things is to hot head the part. Now, the cold headed part, by the way, is, is done on a, we put like five, 700, maybe even thousand pound coils of wire in front of the machine and it uncoils the wire and straightens it out before it goes into the machine. And then, you know, the fifth station, by the way, was cut off, which is the first process. It cuts it off to length and then it progressively forms it. Um, the, the other way of doing it is hot heading and you would take bars of stock and you would cut it off to length and then you deburr it and then you chamfer it and then you send it over for hot heading and then you have to put it into a, a, a induction heater, which is basically some coils, um, that you put the part into and it's almost... It's not, but it's similar to if you were microwaving the part. In other words, it only takes about a minute to heat the part up, glowing red, uh, almost transparent. Uh, you've seen parts at some point that, uh, whether it's at a forge or, or uh, at steel manufacturing plants, you've seen where the, the material is, is red hot, almost white and in some cases even almost transparent looking. Mm -hmm. uh, so we can heat that part up to that level in one minute using these induction heaters. And then you grab it with a pair of pliers, um, needle nose pliers that have been bent to, to have a round uh, grip on them so you can grab a round part with it. You put it into the hot header, and then with both hands, you press the uh, the the start buttons in a start cycle, and it's about a 300 pound, a uh, 300 ton press. You know, come down and slam it, and it forms it in one shot. Now that process, just the heat, the hot heading, one at a time process, takes about a minute or so to heat up the part, and about another minute to actually head the part. So it's a very slow and costly process compared to the cold heading. So we cold head it if we possibly can, um, but sometimes we have to hot them. 
if the diameter is too large or if the length is too long. Now, when we bring in a cold header, um, we buy these uh, progressive headers at auctions and we rebuild them. Um, we're typically buying a, a progressive header for anywhere from three quarters of a million to about a million and a half. And it takes about three years to rebuild it the way we want it rebuilt because we're building it better than it was new and strengthening it and, and getting rid of areas where they're, they're weak is so we can head these tougher materials um, at a cost of about three quarters of a million to a million dollars um, over a three year period. And then it takes about another six months plus and about another three quarters of a million to tool them up. So we finally get these things online, but we can we can head these tougher materials, and we do multiphase and aromat and some of these tougher materials, astaloid, Greek astaloids, so so forth. Um, we we do these tougher materials. We can cold head them uh, where other places have not been able to. We also, in some cases, like uh, uh, titanium, we will do warm heading where we put a, a heater in front of the cold heading equipment and heat the material up as it's going into the header um, so uh, we can make it more pliable. And titanium is, is uh, a material that just doesn't like to move around without splitting, so it's better if you heat it up in order to head it. But we don't want to overheat the material. Uh, because you use you lose too many of the properties that you gain through cold forging. Materials have a grain, and you want the grain to follow those those forms that you've um, put into a part, and that makes them stronger. Do you understand that concept? Yeah. I, I'm sorry, it's a little difficult to explain. No, this is good stuff. No, no, this is awesome. <laughs> wow. That's why we're quiet. We're listening. to explain without props. But you can see where cold heading at 35 to 40 parts a minute is a lot more cost effective than hot heading at, at a couple of minutes apart. Not to mention all the things, the cutoff, the deburring, the chamfering that had to be done prior to. And also you have to normalize the parts, you have to put them through a heat cycle to normalize uh, the stresses that built up during that hot heading. Um, and you also have to do some additional machining, uh, deburring and descaling and different things uh, to that hot pitted part also, uh, just to get to the point of where it would be similar to the cold headed part <laughs> before it moves on to the actual heat treatment process. So. It's, it's a much costlier, much more time-consuming um, uh, way to do things. So we like to cold head when we can because it's a lot more cost-effective. Um, but we do do hot heading where we have to. So. With all the machinery that you guys have, do you guys have a, like an in-house metrology department that keeps everything calibrated and adjusted? And you Yes, know, we, have a, we have an in-house. In uh, well, we are AS... 9100 certified. We are also QA uh, 9001 certified. We also have people that that do do in-house certification of, of all of our tools and, and various things all the time. And we also have an outside source that comes in and does uh, certification as well. Um, and then we, we have to go through uh, 
um, a a review process two to three times a year for our, for our quality programs by an outside source, and and we're doing our our own internal audits uh, once a month basically. Wow! So there's a there's a lot of that going on. Now we have also um, our in our own in-house inspection labs and testing labs, and every product that goes through our place from start to finish, every process has to be signed off and bought from quality control from one process before it can move to the next. And then it has to go through a final inspection after the product is finished. Now there's an average of about 30 to 32 processes per part during the manufacturing process. Wow. So there's a lot of inspection going on on these parts all the way through their manufacturing. Also, when we set up a thread roller and we're going to, to roll a critical part, rock connecting rod bolts or any critical parts, we take that part in after the thread roller is set up. The first part that the operator considers is a good part. He has to take it in and we destructive test it and make sure it meets a minimum amount of cycles before he can run that job. How long does the destructive uh, portion take? Is it a couple of days or is it done within it's a shift? Hours. It's hours, basically okay. within a shift. I mean, uh, we have more machines than we have operators. So <laughs> that's a good okay. thing. Uh, we, don't, we don't want that operator standing around all day with nothing to do. But, yeah, right. it can take four or five hours. Wow. I, I'm kind of speechless here. It's like, yeah. holy crap. I had no idea. I honestly had no idea what, what was involved. I'd love to go and watch that whole process. You Have guys a, are oh, welcome to come oh, down and so take awesome. a tour anytime. <laughs> Outstanding. Oh, and that goes out to, out to your uh, listeners as well, uh, our viewers, listeners, whatever. Um, it, it, just give us a heads up. Say, you know, I'm going to be in town on this day. Can I get a tour of the plant? We'll be happy to accommodate you. What we need now is a round six bus. <laughs> like a TMC bus? I'm seeing this working out. Um, <laughs> an old English double-decker? No, yes. an old VW bus. Oh, oh that. <laughs> oh, it's like five people, you know? Yeah. All of our listeners. You know, most of the people that come to see us and take the tour, they'll come in and, man, you guys, your bolts are so expensive, you know? Why do they cost so much? Yeah, and follow me. Or... And, and without fail, the comments always after the tours, gosh, how can you guys make that stuff so cheap? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I kid you not. It's a true story. I, that answered, I, I can't say thanks enough. You answered so many questions in, in that little amount of time. That was awesome. Um, and, and awesome is just a horrible word to use for that, but it's all I've got right now. Um, well, it is an awesome, it is an awesome thing, especially to see it in practice. It, 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 it's truly awesome is the word. So I know it sounds a little hokey, but that that's true. It, it truly is awesome. So, and I, I love the fact that you, you're still as excited about what you do every day. 
you know, a- after you know, just being around it, you think, you know, the average person might think, okay, well, you get, you get kind of, um, you know, what's the word? Everything would kind of become pedestrian to you, no. you know? No, I don't, I don't get jaded. I tell you, I, I love my job. I truly love my job. And uh, if I can do it another 42 years, I will. I certainly hope you can. I mean, I'd like you to find some time to go on vacation, too. You know, we can stop by with the bus and take you somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to stop by any time, guys. So the, the big question now is, okay, I, I know you guys do advertising, but mm-hmm. the funny part to me is, and I, I was trying to wrap my head around this when we were planning to have you on, is with a product like yours, you, you could run just standard advertising. You know, hey, here's a picture of our bolts. Here's things like that. You're kind of in a unique position, especially with all of your motorsports involvement, where you can show literally your product in action in a print ad by just showing that, hey, your, your fasteners have been used on this particular car that won this race or this series. And that, to me, it just strikes me as amazing because your advertising is almost handled for you by the very people who purchase your parts. Yeah. Well, there's that's true. Our, our best our best salespeople are our our customers. Um and and we've been very fortunate over the years that that uh that they continue to uh let us advertise the fact that they do use our product. Um and hero ads are great, but sometimes you have to just get to the nuts and bolts of the thing too. So <laughs> nicely played. <laughs> so uh, so we, we we do both. We still do hero ads, and they are very effective. But uh, sometimes you really just have to go into detail and explain to people what you're doing as well. So we do some of both. And I, I think that's awesome. And it, it's weird too because you've got a product that really i mean it it wouldn't translate super well to like film like say you get into a series like the fast and the furious or some kind of a movie series like that where if you were selling turbochargers superchargers body kits or vinyl stick on graphics something like that mm. where you could have that show up on screen it would be really tough to have a lot of product placement it, you know i was trying to figure this out in my head because I'm always thinking about the marketing behind things. It's my well, a lot of that life. Is, is bought advertising, to tell you the truth. And and that's one thing that we won't do for our advertising is we won't we won't buy our way into somebody saying that we run they run our product on their vehicle. Um, awesome. They either agree to let us say that or they don't. Um, it's it's really that simple. A lot of that stuff you see on, say, a Fast and Furious, where you see a a a, a, a royal purple or whatever, they've they've paid for that advertising to be on oh, right. there. So, so there's no hope of watching a lead character, you know, walk across and suddenly spill a bag of you know, a bag of bolts. <laughs> oh, ARP my bolts. my ARP bolts! So. <laughs> my wavelock bolts. Money for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, the, and there are race teams that want a lot of money for that, too. There's one particular NASCAR team that after 12 straight years of, of some sponsorship involvement with them, where we were giving them, you know, a, a, a bit of product and selling them a bit of product. And after 12 years of that arrangement with them, they decided all of a sudden that they wanted 
in order to keep our decal on their car. They wanted a minimum of 250000 per year per car and all the product to be free. And yeah. we said, no, thank you. And they says, okay, well, that catalog you just printed 200,000 copies of, um, you better get our cars off of them or we're going to sue you. So we had to had to throw that whole run of catalogs out that were less than a month old and and reprint them. Too bad you couldn't just do like a a retrofit where you send out a you know a sticker or a decal. <laughs> it's like, on page thirty two, please insert this on the top half of yeah. the page. <laughs> well, unfortunately, yeah, it wasn't just in the guts; it was also in the covers. So, yeah. <laughs> Uh, or, or those car ads, you know, where the car's they, not available. It's just, just out for a bath. Mm -hmm. They were playing hardball, you know. So they hired some marketing uh, guru, whatever, to come in, and he was playing hardball with us. But it really soured us on, on the whole relationship with them, unfortunately. And, I'm sorry. Uh, and it had, a, it had a, a, an issue going forward um, for some time. Um, it, it, it all worked out over the years, but... But, you know, we've, we've never got back to that relationship we did have with them, which is sad, I mean, for them, not just us. I think it's really sad for them as well because I think the relationship we had with them was really beneficial to their team. And that's, that's kind of the thing. And to kind of, you know, use that as a springboard into a couple other questions I have. You know, it, to me, any relationship, personal or professional is always worth far more than a dollar figure. And, Absolutely. And that, that should be, you know, you think that would be a given, especially, you know, I mean, you get into the hot rod world where I think everyone kind of gets to know everybody and there's always a certain amount of camaraderie and it's almost like a family type thing. And, you know, so that kind of leads me to this now because you've, you've had some pretty cool cars over the years and I need to ask, um, how did you get into hot rods, custom cars, street machines, all the fun stuff? I grew up in a town called Wentzville, Missouri. And in this little town of Wentzville, Missouri, was a track called MAR, or Mid-America Raceway. And this little track, back in the mid-60s, had a lot of match racing going on there. And there were guys like Butch Leo and Arnie Beswick and, and <laughs> all these guys coming through there and, and with their, uh, you know, their factory, um, altered race cars, um, factory altered stock cars, basically the AFX stuff and the uh, super stock stuff. And I just got hooked. I had three uncles at the time that were racing out there. And, and they were all racing Oldsmobiles. And they had these big, full-bodied, heavier-than-heck um, Oldsmobiles. And they had the front ends all jacked up on them for weight transfer. And I, I was out there with them. But uh, I wasn't really out there to watch them race. <laughs> I wanted to see the factory super stocks and the AFX cars and stuff go down the track. And it really hooked me, and I, I just, I, I just had to figure out some way to be involved in the racing industry ever since I was 
six. I think I started going out to MAR when I was six years old. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> Been a while. So what brought you from Missouri to Southern California? Uh, the Beach Boys, the Mamas and the Papas, Jan and Dean, et cetera, et cetera. They were all telling me how wonderful California was. <laughs> can, can we pay you to say the round six bus? <laughs> the round six bus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so you, you, you really, you, you actually lived the whole, I, I heard Beach Boys songs. It planted the vision in your head and you, you went for it. So, oh yeah, Absolutely. Like it, at what age we did had you also make... a famous um, a famous musician um, that owned half of the town there. His name was Chuck Berry, by the way. Oh, jeez. Never wow. heard of him. <laughs> <laughs> I went to school with two of his boys. Yeah. Well, so, okay. Now, so like, I went through kind of a similar thing. I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and grew tired of snow and cold and everything like that. And I made the shift out to California and I did that in my twenties. At, at what age did you did you make the jump? Um, I was actually real young. I, I, I my first time that I came to California on my own, I was fourteen. Whoa. And um, even though I was fourteen, I looked ten, so that didn't last <laughs> a week. Um, I was picked up and sent back. But the uh, second time I came out and made it stick, I was 17. Whoa. Oh, my God. Okay, so. <laughs> so and the bird's questions. excited, too, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. I don't know where the microphone is, or I'd try to at least block oh, some of the sound. This is, I, I kind of like this. This gives it a whole new atmosphere. We're going to. I tell people we're, you know, live from, what did you say earlier, Alex, we are, the, the Enchanted Tiki Room in the Disneyland. The Enchanted Tiki Room at Disneyland. Tiki room. For yeah. Don Ho to kick in in just a second, he's going to do a little serenade. Yeah. Hey, knock it off. <laughs> they listen to me sometimes. Oh, I was like, wait, I'm so used to hearing that in my life. I thought you were talking. Yeah, I got quiet all of a sudden. I got quiet. I seriously <laughs> <laughs> yelled at. So, so you get out to California at 17, man, how do you, wow. Um, well, I, you know, I started, uh, washing dishes and whatever I could do to su support myself at the time. Right. Um, but not, not long. I, I, I mean, I was, I wasn't even 18. I went to work for a, a company that, uh, sold plumbing supply. Boy, I can talk tonight that sold plumbing supplies wholesale. And uh, I went to work as a, a salesman in training. And uh, by the time I was 18, um, I was out on the road on my own, and I had 238 accounts in California, Arizona, and Nevada. And I had to, count, I had to call on all those accounts at least once a month and the bigger ones, like Superior and Familiar and et cetera, I had to call on once a week. So I was on the road all the time. Just, I, I never even really saw my apartment. I kept an apartment, but it was just to keep my stuff in. And uh, I'd go there if I was lucky once a month and trade out stuff. But for the most part, I was having stuff cleaned by, you know, uh, dry cleaners 
um, on a day-to-day basis um, and on the road all the time. Now, I got supplied a, a company vehicle and a per diem, and I had expense money, and I, I made good money doing that. I was actually uh, making 12.5% uh, commission uh, plus a salary on, on my biggest line, um, which was a patented product that nobody else had um, by Mission Clay Pipe. And it was uh, connectors that you could connect, say, four-inch uh, 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 clay pipe to two-inch steel pipe or cast iron pipe. Um, so you can imagine how popular that would be in, in, the, uh, in the plumbing industry. And it was a patented product that nobody else had. It sold itself. But I'd like to think that I did a pretty good job of selling it, too. Anyway, <laughs> after two years of doing that, I was just totally burnt out and... Uh, so then I started doing some, you know, marketing, um, uh, marketing sales, whatever, uh, of Country Time Lemonade and, and, and various other products. You guys probably remember that, you know, the, the stuff you mix with water. Uh-huh. Um, so I was going to supermarkets and I was setting up, you know, talking them into setting up, up uh, end caps in the stores because these were new products that hadn't really been uh, to marketplace yet. So I'm setting up these end caps in stores with the, you know, Country Time Lemonade and various other products. And, uh, and I was doing that when I met the founder. Uh, and then I went to work for Airbnb. I, I was going to ask you, you know, since, since you came out here, and obviously you like the California stuff, did you, did you start building cars right away? Or did that take you a while to kind of get motivated? Or what, what was your deal as far as the hot rod stuff goes? Uh, well, um it's, well, when I was uh, when I was tired of uh, being on the road all the time, I uh, I got a Honda CB seven fifty four, and that was my first hot rod, so to speak. Um, I did it all cafe racer style with drop bars and everything. And at the time, I was living in Huntington Beach, California, and. Uh, I, I spent about, I don't know, three or four months goofing off, hanging around a, a bunch of other like-minded guys. And uh, some of them killed herself and some were paralyzed. And, and I went down four different occasions. And I finally realized this is stupid. And uh, <laughs> quit writing. I haven't written since. Um, and I bought a, a 68 satellite with a 383 and automatic. Um, and that, that was my first real hot rod car. My first car was when I was uh, 17, when I came out to California. I bought a Ford Cortina. Um, Ooh, kind of cool. Yeah, it was. Wow. Yeah, I bought it for 500 bucks. I sold it for 500 bucks. I thought it was the greatest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> I drove the piss out of it. But uh, I really liked my satellite. And, and then... Um, uh, I, I spun an engine bearing or something. I think I spun an engine bearing is what it was. And I went, there was a local, um, a local, uh, auto dealer, <laughs> our auto dealer about a block and a half from where I live. So I walked over there and he wanted, uh, 2000, I think $300 for a, 
a 69 Roadrunner, uh, 383 four-speed that was just cherry uh, sitting on his lot, and I talked him down to $1,500 for it. <laughs> Nicely done. Wow. Yeah. I had to threaten to leave twice, but I got him talked down to 1500 I walked out the door uh, with the title and keys in hand and drove off the lot, and that, that was a great car. I, I loved that car a lot. And odd story. Um, when, when, let's see, about 1982, when we moved from Van Nuys to Canoga Park, uh, Van Nuys was the second location that ARP was at when I was working there, um, to Canoga Park, the third location. I had no place to put the car. I left it in the backyard because I had no place to put it. And also the founder's son had a 1969 440 GTX that he left there for the same reason. A bit sad. Anyway, I've had, uh, you know, a variety of muscle cars. Um, uh, my first real um, show-worthy car was one that I built in 1998 and took on Hot Rod Power Tour. And it was a 70 and a half Camaro with a 502 fuel injected big block and uh, hot rod car magazine um, approached me as soon as I got back from power tour and said they, they'd like to give me the December 98 cover. And I uh, wanted to know what I thought of that. And I asked them if they were kidding and they said, no. So uh, that was my first, uh, my first uh, real show-worthy uh, and, and magazine-worthy car that I built. And I did that myself in-house with some of the guys, you know, from ARP. A lot of the guys from ARP actually helped me put that together. And it was all done in-house, including the painting, believe it or not. And Kenny Duttwater built the motor for it. <laughs> one of my heroes. <laughs> yeah, one of mine, too. <laughs> So, yeah, that was my first one. And then the uh, uh, the June issue of Street Rider magazine, uh, your viewers uh, uh, may have seen, uh, I had my uh, 57 Ford wagon on the cover and, and also an article on that. And that was my first real um, wake up um, to having somebody build a car for me. And everything that it entails, from from cost to uh, to level of detail to uh, quality of product, in the end, um, it's it's just amazing. Well, that uh, car is a work of art at, from one end to the other. Yeah, it truly is. It truly is. But um, along with works of art, you usually end up paying for works of art. So. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, being the sick puppy I am, I didn't learn my lesson, and I'm having another project start right now. So, well, that's awesome. See, the wagon, I I was fortunate enough, you know, where where you had the thing, a lot of the metal work done, and had it had it painted. I was down there all the time, mm. so I watched I, I watched the whole transformation over over the years time it was down there getting the metal work done. I watched the whole thing happen, and there was a bunch of metal work. Done. Oh. And, and people don't really realize it because it, it's done so well 
that you just don't know that anything's changed. You know it looks better, but you don't know why. Yeah, um, it's all too often. Yeah. All too often, guys, you know, start doing metal work on cars, and and they end up with something that's gaudy and looks out of place. Um, we really wanted to keep it all for design language, and I think that that was the best decision in the end. So, yeah, awesome. Yeah, it was kind of cool. I even got to I even got to do a little work on that car, which was you, which was kind of fun, kind of an honor. Yes, you did, uh, and I am I am very honored. And and you did something really special for me on the tailgate, which was a little tribute to Pete Chaporis, who was also yes. an integral part of of the design and how that car came about. And uh, unfortunately, we lost Pete last January, and uh, and I was I was truly truly uh, not this last January, the January before. Am, am I correct in that? Some yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so. Uh, yeah, it, it was a huge, devastating loss to me um, because, unfortunately, I just met Pete over the year that my car was having all the body work done on it. Um, but we became fast friends, and and it felt like we knew each other for a lifetime. Pete was a very unique individual. I, I met Pete in uh, 85 or 86 Somewhere around there, I I did a bunch of work for him when he lived up on the mountain up in Crestline. So I knew Pete a long time. Mm, mm. I wished I had. But Great again, guy. Said, I, I mean, it, it felt like I knew him a lifetime during the course of that year. And, and Pete's been a big loss to me. But uh, but uh, Brad, you, you did a very nice thing in doing a little tribute on the tailgate of the wagon for me there. And, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, sir, very much. Thank you for letting me be involved with it. I mean, that was oh, my honor. A cool I mean, project. Yeah, my honor. We had so much talent involved in that thing. Um, just some of the best in the industry. I, I am so honored that the, all the people that came together on the card did. Um, I can't even. Uh, they, they, just the best of the best. And, and and they were all they were all great. I mix Mick from Mixed Paints. Uh, 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 Joey Angelo uh, did a lot of the body modifications, and he worked for Mick at the time. He's doing his uh, his own thing now as a contractor, but he's still associated with Mick in that he's leasing some uh, some space from him. Um, uh, and 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 uh, Rick, um, gosh, my mind's a blank. Lefevre. Rick Lefevre, um, he is a welding god. He is a yes, he is a guru. He is without an it. amazing individual. <laughs> he did, he did things that I would have never thought could be possibly done. Um, the, the sill plates, uh, um, which seems not to be an inter- important thing, but it was so important to me. To keep this thing, I didn't want any billet pieces. I didn't want any aftermarket pieces, so to speak, on the majority of this car. I mean, the only thing that's really aftermarket is is some of the, you know, well, the engine is a Boss 9, so it's not an original uh, Boss 429. It's uh, it's made by uh, uh, John Cosy, who used to be uh, uh, Dino Don Nicholson's crew chief, and John's just an amazing guy. 
But uh, so I, I'm using his engine, and uh, I've got the Borla fuel injection on it, the H-stack fuel injection, and then I've got the, the billet wheels. But for the most part, this thing is all uh, Ford parts for the most part. Anyway, so the sill plates, um, they are 20 thousandths thick aluminum, and Rick Lefevre took two sill plates for each side, cut them. Uh, so that they could be lengthened uh, because we lengthened the door like uh, almost six inches. So we had to lengthen the sill plates as well because we moved the door jam back and everything. And he welded together these 20,000 thick aluminum sill plates and you couldn't even tell where they were welded together. I mean, <laughs> this guy is amazing. Not to mention we had to lengthen all the trim and everything. So, uh, but See, the Rick, trim is what I was impressed with. I saw the yeah. trim. I was like, dude, it's like welding up a beer can. I, I don't even know how I did that. that yeah, was... well, uh, well, that was stainless steel. I mean, but 20,000 thick aluminum. Uh, he had to build a whole special heat sink and everything else for this. It, it just impressed the heck out of me. But um, uh, Rick had come to me um uh, before he, he started doing some test stuff on the sill plates and he says, look, you know, this is going to cost you a fortune. You could, I know a guy over here that will make you these billet sill plates and this and that. And I said, Rick, look at the car, look at the car, you know, in for a dime in for a dollar. I says, you know, you got to do this. I, you got to do it. So Rick made it happen and I can't thank him enough. Um, and, uh, Tony Thacker was involved a lot in the design of the car. Uh, Steve Strope and I would go out there almost on a weekly basis, and we'd go out and have lunch, and we'd go out with uh, with uh, Phil, and we'd go out with Tony, and we'd go out with Joey and Mick, and and then there was uh, 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 I can't remember his name now. Anyway, there were there were a lot of people of of our industry where we go out and we just sit down and have lunch and we'd start deciding the direction of the car and where it was going to go and how it was going to end up. And, and I, I'm, I'm just very fortunate that I had the people involved that I did on this thing. Can't say enough about them. Awesome. It definitely shows. I mean, that car is, uh, that, that thing's a, it, it's a graduate degree in finesse and subtlety. The thing is awesome. I, I thank you very much. That means a lot to me. I appreciate it. But so my next project is going to be a lot simpler and uh, a lot less expensive. Um, but uh, building a truck. Uh, it's a 67 uh, Chevrolet C10 truck. And uh, we're putting in a 67 uh, Corvette. 435 horse, 427 drivetrain. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, I've got date-coated block heads, date-coated tri-power unit, oh, date-coated awesome. M22 rock crusher. Uh, wow. I've got a date-coated um, uh, C2 uh, rear suspension. Um, I've also got the uh, cross members that the C2 suspension uh, bolts up to and actually the frame rails of a, 
of a Corvette that uh, had front end damage. So he cut the frame rails and those cross members out and sent me that whole bit. So this is going to be a real neat piece. It's all day yeah. covered. It's all That's day awesome. covered. Wow. And, you know, I just want to make it look like, uh, you know, Moss and, and some of the other, other engineers got together in 67 and uh, decided to build themselves a shop truck. Very cool. And, and nothing runs like a, a 427. That Those things are magical. They are an amazing. Yeah, and, I, and I've already had offers um, from from a couple of guys that are now making uh, two-barrel fuel injection systems uh, to fuel inject it. And I said, no, no, no. That strays away from the whole, <laughs> yeah. the whole premise of the project. No, it's carbureted. Sorry. <laughs> I thank you very much for offering, but... <laughs> <laughs> so Mick's, Mick's going to be doing the paint and body work. I, I located a, a, a C10 in uh, Atlanta, Georgia area, um, a short wheelbase, big window, and it's got the original paint on the exterior, although they did repaint the bed because it got beat up pretty good, I guess, along the way. They repaint the, the inside of the bed. They've gone through the whole thing. The whole chassis has all been gone through and, and repainted. And the underhood, the engine's been uh, uh, revamped, and everything under the hood is repainted. So it's a nice, you know, one of those patina uh, things, which I hate, by the way. I think if you're going, if you're <laughs> going to build a proper um, uh, uh, project, Paint the thing. Come on, paint the thing. Quit, <laughs> quit trotting this junk <laughs> with with modern underpinnings. Um, I I I'm sorry. That's just my feelings. Anyway, um, so you know this is a, a a truck that's already worthy of of somebody taking out and taking the car shows or whatever and showing as a patina project. But um, that's my starting point on this, and I I gotta. I, I must say I got a very good deal on it, um, but more importantly, I was just happy to come up with a uh, an unmolested example of a big window short wheelbase 67 C10, which are hard to come by. Yeah, and when you do find them, they're usually pretty expensive. So, yeah, 67 and 68 are the best looking front ends of that generation of 67, yeah, I think, 72. I think so too. They're the best looking ones. Yeah, and it just plays into the you know. Everything had to be 67 on this to make it work. Uh, and it, it's another thing from the mind of Steve Strope, the master. <laughs> the master. I, 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 I like how this guy's mind works. I so is this going to be more like a road race looking truck kind of thing? No, 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 no. Basically, everything on the thing is going to be uh, basically as it could have been done in 67. I'm not putting coilovers on it. I'm going to the transverse uh, uh, leaf spring in the rear and the whole thing. Um, and the only thing that's really going to be aftermarket on the truck is the uh, torque thrust wheels. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> and it'll be silver blue, which is a Corvette color, and it's going to have a red gut. And I'm retaining the bench seat, but I'm going to have Gabe's to the interior and we're going to do it in the actual Corvette red, um, but in leather, not in vinyl. And uh, and uh, we'll uh, contour the bench seats to uh, 
mimic the uh, bucket seats of the Corvette. Mm-hmm. We're going to use that chrome T-handle reverse lockout gear shift lever knob. And uh, all the gauges will be uh, redone with the, the Corvette fonts in, uh, to give it a, a Corvette look. But I don't want to put a Corvette dash in, per se. I just the gauges I want it to look like. Or Very nice. That. Well, the, oh, bonus points, though, if you, uh, if you mount the Corvette radio. <laughs> Straight up and down <laughs> vertically? <laughs> I, unfortunately, there's not enough room for that because I am going to put air conditioning in it because that's just a pet peeve of mine. I, I do like my air conditioning. So, um, so there, there won't be enough room to put the vertical radio in. <laughs> uh, although that, had be, that, that, that was a thought. That was a thought. Um, but I, I, I'm not going to do a council either. I'm going to do a floor shift. So we're probably going to have to modify that uh, that shifter a bit, which, you know, I know somebody with a machine shop. So. Oh, yeah. So you, you've got access to some pretty talented yeah. people that way. <laughs> yeah. It yeah. shouldn't be an issue. Although I, I can't help but think, though, going back to the patina thing, the market you might be missing out on by not have, by not offering, you know, patina bolts. Yeah. Uh, no, <laughs> they come, they come, already come rusty. Oh, oh yeah, that'd go over real well. Yeah, paint overspray on them. Oh yeah, yeah I think paint it's a overspray huge market. maybe. The rust, uh, no, no. How great with that. Well, it's be? fake rust though. It's it's simu- simulated rust. rust. You can come up with a process, you know, rust. Yeah. simu rust. You know, you can, <laughs> proprietary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> lovely guys. I, uh, no royalties here now. Ah, <laughs> oh, shoot then. Okay, Get rid of those silly 12 points and put, you know, six Whatever. points on them. Uh, we'll, just, we'll just go back to China and work with that company. Was it RAP? Yeah, they'll listen. That's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. A- A- ALP or whatever. <laughs> ALP. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'll I, I would love to have you back, sir, if you'd be interested. Oh, anytime, guys. Yeah, when you started talking tech, I mean, I was, you know, I was mesmerized. That's awesome. That's okay. Well, right I, I think we didn't lose any audience members. Uh-huh. I mean, uh-huh. sometimes that can get to be a snooze, especially without props. With props, hey, it's really great. Don't get me wrong. I mean, it's really great stuff, but it can it can be get to be a snooze without the props. So I, I hope I hope no, everyone. It was fascinating. Over. I can't say thank you enough. I mean, you, you, you presented won't. it in a great way. I, I'm more than happy. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. And that's what we base everything on here. Is you know, is Brian as happy? As that's Brian's happy. Brian happy. There you it's go. It's all about Brian. If Brian's happy, it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you again, sir. Very much. My pleasure. Yes, thank you, Bob. Yes, it was very much my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. I really enjoyed it. We've been looking forward to it. And this. I do enjoy your broadcast. I am I am now a fan. Um, oh, uh, for whatever reason, I didn't know about you until recently. But after listening to some of your broadcasts, I am very much a fan. So, well, Thank you. Um, we, we kept kind of a low profile after Alex's appearance in uh, Playgirl. Yeah. But, um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want that to interfere. You know, it was my lifelong dream and, you know, it was You my, and Burt Reynolds, man. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that that's the funny part that that issue is Alex and Burt Reynolds. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it's awkward, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On the fur rug, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, guys. Well, anytime. Right. I, I, I'm proud to be associated with you and, and, oh, wow. and happy to do this broadcast. We as well. Like right. Thank you so much. Thank Humble. you again, sir. I truly appreciate this. I had a great time. <laughs> and I, and just let me know. Whenever you want to do something again, let me know. I'll be happy to participate. And, I, and I'm seriously thinking, I would love to come up and tour the facility. Please I mean, that do. store the stuff just I was dead gets serious. me spinning, like, man. What I told you for you and your viewers, I mean, as long as you give us a, a couple of days notice saying you're going to be around and could we give you a tour? We'll be happy to accommodate. See, Alex and I are just going to show up. Hey, where's Bob? What? He said we got a tour and he's buying us lunch. What? <laughs> yeah, Wait, what? You know. yeah. All right, guys. Hey, go have a great evening and we'll talk to you soon. And likewise. Take care. Uh, have a great bye, night, bye, sir. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Well, that was uh, beyond anything uh, we were expecting coming into this one, man. We, we got a great mixture of tech so, Alex, I know that was, like, right up your alley, oh, man. man. so much fun. I mean, I, I was digging it. It was it was fun. And and to listen to him, you know what's so great about Bob? He's a marketing guy. And sometimes when you're around some folks in the industry, the marketing guys really aren't technical guys. So here's a guy that knows the marketing side, and he can answer every question you need. He knows all the processes. It was phenomenal. So uh, I'll bet you in the industry when he's kind of working with some clients, they're probably a little surprised that the marketing guy is on his game. Well, I like the fact that he said he started at the bottom, you know, so he learned yeah. all the equipment. Yep. You go, okay, there's there's my hero because he yep. knows the company inside. Yep, yep, exactly. And then, you know, and like you said, you know, there's, you know, starting at the bottom is, you know, sometimes it's it's a tough one to swallow when you're that young kid and you want to, you know, you want to move, you know, move up. But I tell you, it sure helped Bob learn every facet of that business. And that goes right back to one of the things we always talk about, you know, it's being able to talk the talk and walk the walk. Yeah, and obviously, and this guy is—he's—he's he's the real deal. This yeah, was... and that's not always common, you know, in in the civilian industry. You know, sometimes you get a guy—he's the greatest marketing guy in the world, but he doesn't know anything about the technical stuff. He knows what he read on his PowerPoint, but man, he could sell an Eskimo a, a, a deep freezer. You know, right. but yeah, so <laughs> or I mean, vice versa. Sometimes you can get those guys that are just brilliant minds. They just don't have the ability to sell their product. You know, they just don't have that uh, capability. You know. Or if you go vice versa, sometimes you have an Eskimo come in and, and sell you, you know, an ice cream yeah, sandwich. Yeah. So, <laughs> an Eskimo <laughs> selling you a uh, fireplace insert. <laughs> <laughs> Solar powered. Solar powered. <laughs> So cool. Let's uh, we'll close this one out tonight uh, in typical fashion. Um, thank you, Bob, for your time and your insight, and man, for for expanding my brain and ho hopefully yours. Yeah. Um, man, uh, as always, at the end here, uh, I, I I would like to just say I'm still Brian, but I am a better Brian now. Yeah. Yes, I'm a, I'm a much smarter Brad, which really isn't saying anything because that wasn't much to start with. But yes, yeah, and I and I'm I'm Alex, and I'm still buzzing from uh, learning about bolts. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Well, awesome. Uh, hopefully, uh, you guys out there had as much fun as we did and got as much out of this. Uh, obviously, there'll, there'll be much more on this on the website, and uh, we'll start a Patreon account soon to start building the uh, the round six bus with all of those patina bolts 
So yeah. Simu Rust. <laughs> it's a trademark. Yeah, it's, yeah, I own it. Simu Rust is a trademark of Round Six Productions. Okay, so in any event, uh, thank you again for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. See ya. Bye. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to keep up with us gearheads over on our website at www.round6pod.com. And if you'd like to, we invite you to follow along with us over on Facebook, Instagram, and be sure to check out all of our latest videos on youtube.com. It'd be a combination of Love Boat and, like, Monster Garage meets Overhauling, where we get a hold of a, uh, like, an old decommissioned aircraft carrier and uh-huh. we load up all these these builders onto this thing and for a week they go on a cruise but they have to build a car to race at whatever location they show up at each time only using things that are available on the boat oh nice see i like that yeah Dude. that isn't bad that isn't a bad and the loser has to drive off the end of the deck <laughs> or, or they leave them behind in the place that they That's went to. Sweet. They leave them behind. <laughs> hey, then he has to build a boat out of the same car. <laughs> <laughs>